Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Defense Department wants to get more companies through the FedRAMP pipeline. FedRAMP being the program that certifies cloud services providers as secure enough for government use. A senior defense official says the goal for the new FedRAMP equivalency memo is to support contractors using cloud services by letting them go through a third-party assessor. And as for Zero Trust, DOD is focusing on red-teaming solutions this year. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis got more on all of this from DOD's Chief Information Security Officer, David McCune. If you look at uh, the DFARS Clause 7012, which sort of initially mandated that companies needed to move to 800-171 for protection of DOD-controlled unclassified information, it was referenced in there that if you were going to use a cloud service in order to satisfy the cybersecurity requirements in 800-171, that that needed to be at a FedRAMP moderate equivalency. For many years, we've been doing assessments through the DIBCAP which is a boots-on-the-ground organization. They work for DCMA. And what we've been finding is that there, it wasn't clear about the definition of FedRAMP equivalency. Now, in 800-171, there's only 110 controls. What we weren't talking about was that you had to achieve FedRAMP moderate for all the cybersecurity controls on the face of the earth. What we, what we wanted to clarify was if you have a 3PAO come in and assess that cloud environment, any of the 110 controls that they say you satisfy, we will give you credit for that. If there are some that you do not satisfy, then you're going to have to work out a customer responsibility matrix where the customer handles the remaining delta. We don't have the capacity to accept POAMs or track POAMs like FedRAMP does. They have a good program there. I love it. I don't want to compete with them. But I do want to give credit to the companies that are trying to leverage a cloud that's not yet FedRAMP certified by having a 3PAO come in and say, okay, are they good with NIST 800-171 or not? And if they're not, what's the delta that the customer has to handle? That's all we were trying to do there. Now, I understand there's some confusion. Uh, I think we're going to have a call with industry where we have a large number of them come onto the call and talk through this a little bit more and tell us where we can maybe clarify the memo. But that was really our intent, just clarify what it meant by FedRAMP equivalency and give them credit for what they have done without having to go the full FedRAMP accreditation process because that's like 350 controls versus the 110. What's the timeline for the call with the industry? Uh, We're hoping to get that together within the next 30 to 45 days. Okay, so the CMMC rule was written way before the memo came out. I'm curious how the memo is going to impact the CMMC final rule. Really, the CMMC rule in this regard remains sort of unchanged from what was in 7012. As you know, we standardized on 800-171, the NIST standard, for protecting CUI. Under CMMC, that's the exact same standard we're going to be checking against. So really, by solving this uh, definition problem from 7012, that will also translate into solving it for CMMC as we implement that. Because, again, the same standard, 800-171, is the backdrop. Yeah. And how do you see what the impact is on the contractors? The goal was to help because I know that the number of people that can get through the FedRAMP pipeline per year, because I sit on the board for the jabs, is about 10 to 12, right? So that's not a lot. So if you don't go with one of the, you know, the vendors that's already been FedRAMP approved, right now 
there's not a lot of options. You could do an agency accreditation, get the Air Force, the Army, the Navy to sponsor you perhaps. But again, that is sort of constricted as to the number that we can get through each year. So the goal here was to try to help them out because I know one company in particular had a 3PAO assessment. They weren't fully 110 control compliant. And we were trying to figure out how do we handle this. And so we're, we're trying to make it so that if you're going to get that 3PAO assessment, we'll give you credit for anything that that assessor said that you passed. But if they said that you were not compliant on some things, I can't accept the POAM. I don't have the capacity to do POAMs. So that delta has got to be handled between you and the customer. So that's really the goal. I thought we were helping by doing this because I know how restrictive the FedRAMP process is, whether it's an agency or the jab. Just switching gears in terms of zero trust. So a couple of months ago, I think uh, you were assessing what the cybersecurity gaps were. What are you currently working on? What are some of the short-term goals that you're working through? And what are you hoping to achieve this fiscal year? Uh, As far as zero trust goes, we received plans from the services and agencies at the end of the year. We've assembled teams that looked at all of their implementation strategies. Many of them were good. Some of them needed rework, so we pushed back those to them. This year, we are focusing on red teaming solutions. So any cloud service provider who thinks they can help uh, by delivering a zero trust environment, zero trust capabilities, we want to red team and validate whether or not that's true and kind of give it a seal of approval that not only is this FedRAMP, but also when you do the following things, you can achieve pretty pretty darn close to zero trust, right? So that's the kind of work we want to do this year. The services are moving out on their plans to implement in a variety of different ways. We weren't prescriptive as to the tools or, or paths forward for them. So each one is approaching this in a little bit different way. But that, that's the plan for this year. And as you know, we've got till 2027. We're we're trying to be aggressive. We're going to be looking at ICAM, trying to onboard everybody to a federated ICAM solution so that we can achieve that granular access controls that we're going to need for an advanced level zero trust. We're also looking at some commercial tools that the department likes and has tested, trying to get the services to onboard to those. Uh, And I'm not going to name names on that, but... In terms of the lack of appropriations and the fact that you're still operating under a continuing resolution, how is that affecting you in any way? 100%, yes. We had money that was supposed to come down for a variety of efforts related to zero trust that did not flow. Significant dollars in some cases. So we're having to pivot and see what we can do to prioritize our efforts. At the same time, being hopeful that eventually that money will arrive and we can continue on those initiatives. We've certainly expressed the impacts of that money not flowing, you know, to senior leadership, to Congress, to, to whoever we can to, to let them know. But, you know, we might be we might be stuck there. And in terms of long-term impact, do you think that might impact the 2027 deadline? Right now, I, I don't think so. These are sort of key validation initiatives that we were going to spend dollars on. Part of the money was for an integrated solution that achieves zero trust. The services, though, they have their money and they have their plans. And the same thing with the agencies. Uh, the money that I'm talking about was money that was going to flow to the DOD CIO for a lot of the initiatives that we had uh, in the portfolio management office, trying to help push this thing along and accelerate it and do validation and give people a pick list of, of validated tools and things like that. So there's, there's some impacts there, but we're working around it for now. 
David McCune, Chief Information Security Officer at the Defense Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance, And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. 
We are now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. 
And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has 
been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.